David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com with David Spada and Elliot Harris. I am Elliot Harris, and David and I have a, a great show today, if you may say so. It is Ken Hawk Harrelson, a man who was a great all-around athlete, focused on baseball, played for the Athletics, Washington Senators, Boston Red Sox, Cleveland Indians, played a little professional golf, became a broadcaster where he has become here with the Chicago White Sox. Ken Harrelson. How did you end up uh, getting involved in baseball with the Kansas City A's? I uh, grew up in Savannah, Georgia, and I played in all the sports. And baseball actually was my worst sport. And uh, I had a mom who just I adored. I was a mama's boy. Still am, even though she's gone. I'll always be a mama's boy. But uh, she was a single parent. She was making 56 bucks a week. And... Uh, she raised me, and she wanted me to play baseball. I made All-American in basketball. Or she made All-American football. Could have gone anywhere I wanted to go, and you know, in uh, football or basketball. Notre Dame, Southern Cal, anywhere. But uh, my mom wanted me to play baseball, and I got a big bonus to sign from Kansas City. So when I got the bonus, I, I signed with them to play baseball. Now, didn't the Dodgers uh, also make you an offer? The Dodgers offered me twice as much as we signed for, and uh, but they had at the time they had a ton of farm teams. They had I don't know thirteen farm teams, twenty three something like that. They had three AAA teams, and they had some legendary players in those uh, became legendary players in those uh, teams. So the guy who signed me, Clyde Putz, was also the guy who signed Catfish Hunter and Dick uh, Hauser. Almost everybody he signed got to the big leagues. And Kansas City only had five farm teams. And he said, uh, he told my mom into signing with him because he said, your son signs with Kansas City. By the time he gets 20 years old, he'll probably be in the big leagues. And he was right. So it was a good choice by my mom. It was hard to turn down that kind of money, especially when you're making 56 bucks a week. But uh, she saw it. She was looking down the road. So the college teams weren't offering you as much money as the uh, minor league teams. Actually, I, I signed to go to the University of Georgia. I, I, very, I got very few baseball scholarship offers. They were all for football and uh, basketball, uh, 90, 90% of them. But I signed to go to the University of Georgia, and one of the alumni there uh, was going to give me uh, a new wardrobe. A new wardrobe every year, a two-year-old car to drive every year, and uh, pay me, I think it was $40 a week. So I had to, that was voided when I signed. Back in those days, you couldn't be a professional athlete and accept a scholarship to go to college. So it was a fairly simple decision to make then? Well, 
it was not, none of those decisions back in those days because even though we didn't have agents, you know, and my mom, right. as I said, was, was a very smart, smart lady. She had a lot of common sense, not much book learning, but uh, she was, I thought she was brilliant, you know, in the common sense area. And uh, she got me in good habits, you know, like reading and, and everything. Uh, I didn't do all my homework. I went to a military school. I actually got paid to go to a military school there. They paid for my uh, books and tuition, which was very expensive. And they had three high schools there in Savannah, and they were all trying to get me to go there. So this one alumni uh, paid me to go out for two hours on a Saturday and paint uh, aluminum gas tanks, butane gas tanks. And then when I, you know, go out during baseball, when I hit home runs, driving runs, that some of the guys would come by to the game, you know, put a five dollar bill in my hand, and then I score twenty or thirty points in a basketball game. They come up, put a five or ten dollar bill in my hand, you know. So I was actually making more of my mom going to high school. <laughs> when you joined the A's in '63, did you realize that you had so many great minds on that team that would become future managers? I mean, you had Dick Hauser, Tony La Russa there. I mean, two. Hall of Fame quality managers? As a matter of fact, yes, is the answer to that. Yes, we knew that we had something special going there. We knew that that was going to be a great ball club. And they moved in 1968, they moved that team out to Oakland, and they went on to win, you know, five consecutive divisional titles and three consecutive world championships. So we we knew that was going to be a great ball club. And Tony, you know, Tony was uh, was the guy, they signed him for a big, big bonus. Tony couldn't play a lick. Uh, couldn't hit, not a good older fielder, but we all respected Tony because he, when he first came up to us, I think he was 18 years old, he was a man. And he carried himself very, uh, eloquently, uh, especially for anybody, but especially for an 18 year old kid. And he, he drew a lot of our respect, uh, in that sense. And then we had some other guys there. You know, we, Dick Hauser was a very, very, uh, sharp guy. I called him slick. And we knew we had some good baseball minds on in that, on that club and in that organization at the time. So it didn't surprise me the uh, evolution, so to speak, of those guys playing their careers out, going into coaching, going into managing. And then Tony, for example, you know, Tony might turn out to be one, certainly one of, if not the greatest manager we've ever had in baseball. Speaking of Dick Hauser, you were teammates with him in the minors, and he is the man who gave you your nickname? Yeah, yeah, he gave me my nickname, Hawk. Uh, I was struggling, you know, I signed when I was 17, and I, you know, went in, and even though I was a local yokel there in Savannah, when you get into professional baseball, that scenario changes in a hurry. And uh, I was having trouble, uh, like everybody does. You know, with, with a good curveball, I couldn't hit it, which I, I couldn't hit it until my nine years in the big leagues either. I could hit a hanger, but I couldn't hit a good one. Nobody can. But uh, we were in the shower one day, and I struck out three or four times, and there was a comic strip in the papers back in those days called Henrietta Hawk. And with my nose and everything, he was calling me Henrietta. And I, I was pissed off, and I told him in the shower one day, I said, I said, Dick, I've had enough of this shit. I don't want to hear it anymore. He said, well, maybe if you get a couple of hits, I'll drop the Henrietta. <laughs> but don't you know, the very next day I hit a whole line, and he dropped the Henrietta, and it's been off ever since. 
Another one of your teammates on those teams was Charlie Law, who became a great hitting coach. Did he ever give you any tips? Oh, well, Charlie, yeah. He was the he was the third-string catcher when I joined Kansas City. Back in those days, they carried, you know, free catchers because they only had a nine- or ten-man pitching staff. Uh, today, they got 12- or 13-man pitching staff, so you can't carry three catchers. But Charlie was another guy of that ilk that you brought up about having a good baseball mind. And he had an engaging personality. He had a personality that, a demeanor that you gravitated to him. And, uh, I would be playing in a game and let's say David Spader was pitching and he would say, oh, David, this guy here is going to just slide you to death. And so he'd give me at least a platform, some thought process of going up there thinking about some other than mechanics. Mechanics are a killer in, uh, in baseball and in golf, if you're thinking about them when you're hitting or when you're on the golf course, you can't you can't score when you're on the golf course. You can't hit in a game if you're thinking about mechanics. And Charlie was a very very unique guy. He, uh, let me turn this radar thing. I don't use it speed because I don't drive fast. I use the fact to keep me from speeding. But um, he became a hitting coach. And Charlie was a unique guy because he wouldn't go seek you out. He would watch you and watch you, and then all of a sudden you'd start having problems. And finally you would go to him. Now, when that happened, you would buy into whatever he was telling you. And Charlie didn't handle 100% of the guys right. Nobody can. Nobody's that smart in baseball. When you've got, you know, 14, 15 guys, uh, hell, if they're that smart, they'd own the club. But he helped a lot of guys, and he probably will be go down as maybe the greatest head coach in the history of the game because I've seen a lot of in my career. And Charlie uh, was right at the top. There's no question about that. We disagreed all the time, you know, because we, we played a lot of cards together. Charlie used to make almost as much money for beating us in hearts as he did on the plane lines as he did make it salary. But uh, – He'll probably go down as, as maybe one of the greatest, if not the greatest, city coach. And you, your manager, Alvin Dark, you got upset when he was fired. Why was that? Well, because he taught us how to play the game. You know, he taught us how to read a scoreboard. Anybody who can know how to read a scoreboard doesn't need any help. You don't have to go ask any questions. It'll tell you as an infielder when you can't miss high, whether so you, you miss, you got to miss low. It'll tell you as an outfielder when you can overthrow a cutoff guy, when you can't. It'll tell a pitcher when he's got to throw a strike, when he when he doesn't need to. It'll tell a hitter when he can be offensive rather than defensive. It'll tell you it'll tell you when you can't make the first or the last out at third base, and that's every game. But it'll just tell you everything that you got to know. And he taught us how to read the scoreboard. That Oakland team that went out there, that Kansas City team that went out there, is the smartest playing team I've ever seen in my what 55 years in this game. They didn't go to the ballpark every day saying, well, let's go kick some ass. You know, they go to the ballpark every day with a quiet confidence that we're not going to beat ourselves. We're not going to make mental mistakes. They didn't know to throw cutoff guys. On, they didn't have, they had different swings on 2-0 when it was, versus when it was 0-2. And Alvin just taught us how to play. We knew we were going to be a hell of a ball club. And then when Philly fired him, I got pissed off and I ripped him apart in the press. And that was in 1967. And then it happened to be four teams. And what a lot of people call the greatest pennant race in history. Within one game of each other, that was the White Sox, the Red Sox, the Tigers, and the Twins. 
And at the particular time that he he released me, the only guy who was swinging it back in, in the league better than I was, Richard Shrensky, who won the, the, the Triple Crown that year. So here I was, and I was making $12,000. And he called me up the next day, and, and we got to an argument, and he released me. There's a long process that I'm not going to go into about that. But, and then all of a sudden, these other teams started calling. And the first team to call was the Chicago White Sox. And uh, they had a, a general manager there that, uh, this is the way the conversation started. He said, I forget his name. Ed Short or something. He said, it's Ed Short with the White Sox. He said, I got Eddie Snacky here with me. He says, we understand you and Charlie had an argument. We want you to come over here and play for the White Sox. And we didn't have agents. I didn't have an agent. There were no agents in baseball. So I'm sitting there listening to him on the phone. And he says, but I got to tell you one thing. He said, I'm not going to get into a bidding war. And I will make you one offer and you take it right now, but I'm not going to call you back. So that struck me, you know, I'm not a smart guy, but it struck me when he said bidding war. One offer, this is it, take it or leave it. So he said, we're going to give you $100,000 to come play with Price Um And I was making 12000 you know, two days before. So I said, I don't think that's fair. I thought about it. You know, I don't think that's fair. I said, I can't, I don't think it's fair. I'm not going to take it. So he said, okay, I'm not going to call you back. And then he put Stanky on the phone. He tried to talk me into coming over. So he hung up the phone. As soon as I hung it up, it wasn't one minute later that he rang again. And it was Haywood Sullivan of the Boston Red Sox. And he said, Hawk, he said, I understand you and Charlie had an argument. I said, yeah. He said, well, we want you to come up here and play in Boston. Because I had played with Sully and for him in Kansas City. He was a player, third string catcher, and also the manager at one point. So he said, I'm going to fly into Baltimore tonight. He says, we'll talk. I said, okay. So now the phone rang all day long. I mean, every almost every team in the big leagues called. Uh, they had Tokyo Giants call, and they offered me triple, triple what my best offer would be if I would sign a three-year contract to come over there and play. And I just kept getting these offers, you know, people calling up. And... uh a lot of them said, what, do you, what have you been offered? Blah, 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 blah. And I said 100000 by the White Sox, which I had been, you know. So I met, I was going to the airport to meet Sullivan that night at Baltimore, and I had to stop by the ballpark and pick up my gear. I had to pick up my, my spikes and my gloves and stuff. So Luke Gatling had been hired as the interim manager. And I love Luke. Luke and I were good buddies. He, uh, he and Gabby Hartnett, uh, Jimmy Dykes. They were coaches on our team, and I had grown to love those guys because I loved to talk baseball with them. So what happened was Luke called me into his office. I went in there, and he says, oh, he says look, Charlie's made it. He, he said he made a mistake. He said he's sorry, blah, 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 blah. He said, if you'll come back, you'll raise your salary to 25000 I said, Luke, I've already been offered 100000 He said, what? I said, I've already been offered 100000 he said, also, he said, if I can get you to come back, you'll make me manager for the next year. And I said, Luke, I can't do that. I said, I can't do that. He said, I know you can. He said, go get your stuff and get your ass out of here. <laughs> so I went to the airport. I met Sullivan. We talked, and he offered me 118000 And I loved Fenway. I just had a big series there. 
couple of weeks, maybe, I don't know, 10 days, two weeks prior to that, where I beat them two of the three games. I had a three-run homer off Lon Borg to win the first game, and I hit a two-run double off John Wyatt to win the third game. So I was questioning their mind, you know, and they had just lost Tony Canigliaro. So everything, the stars were all in line. I mean, it was incredible. It was an incredible story about the sequence of events that happened. And, I mean, this this shit went on now. It didn't stop there. It went on. And I finally was offered $250,000 to sign uh, with the Atlanta Blades. And I'm not going to go into it because I'm at the ballpark now. I'm not going to go into the, you know, the details of that. It was just a, an unbelievable, unbelievable sequence of events. And I, at that time, that was the biggest raise in baseball history. I finally, finally signed with the Red Sox for 150000 And, uh, at that time, that was by far the biggest raise in the history of baseball. So I'm parking right here. Uh, that was how I, I got to go to Boston. And then, uh, you know, and then the next year, I almost won the triple crown. So it was, uh, it's been, a, it's been a fun ride. I can tell you that right now. I mean, that Boston team was loaded there in the late sixties. You had Yastrzemski, yourself. Canigliero, I mean, there was just so much talent on that team. Well, we went to the World Series, and we got beaten seven games by three of them by Bob Gibson, who, uh, we, we, outside of Gibby, we had a better team than uh, the Cardinals, but they had Gibson, and he just stuck it up our ass for three games. I mean, it was, it was, it was a great thrill for me because, you know, prior to that, I had been, I had been in Kansas City, where we had a young ball club, but we lost a lot of ball games. And then all of a sudden go to a pennant contender. I think in Kansas City, we had one beat rider that traveled with us, you know. And all of a sudden I get to Boston now and there's 30 or 40 riders every day in the clubhouse. You can't hardly move because that Boston clubhouse is like a big closet. And plus, you know, the, the excitement of it. And then also the, the intrigue for me, uh, hitting behind Yastrzemski. When he won a triple crown, he won a triple crown in the midst of what they call the greatest pennant race in history. So, I mean, that's, that's something. And just to watch that guy and what he did and, uh, and when, when he did it, it's not what he did, it was when he did it, it was incredible. I learned more hitting behind him than I did from any hitting coach that I ever had. He didn't leave many runners on base to knock in, though, did he? No, no, uh, thank goodness. Because... <laughs> I didn't have, I didn't have it, I had it, the, the hitting part, it was just starting, it was in this, like a embryonic stage. I had just started to figure it out a little bit. As I said, I was swinging the bat great. And then my first time, I joined them in New York, and my first time up, I hit a home run, because it was a big loss for them to lose Canigliaro, you know, and they needed another bat in there. And so when they were down a little bit because of the fact of the loss of Tony, and then my first at bat, I hit a home run over the school board in the right center field in the Yankee Stadium, and uh, that sort of picked everybody up. And actually, I didn't do that much down the pennant race. I won a few, couple of games for them. I won, I think, three games. I drove in five runs against the White Sox in a big in a big game, and then won a couple of other games. But it, I just got a call up and watching the ass. Everybody did. We just jumped on his back, and he just carried us, that little 178-pound asshole. And I say that lovingly. Was Bob Gibson the most intimidating pitcher you ever faced? No, no, no. He, he, Bob Gibson was a great pitcher. He was, there was no, I mean, nobody could stand him. I couldn't stand him. 
Nobody could. And I never met him. I mean, just the stories you heard about him. That, you know, I mean, baseball, baseball is a unique game. That's where little guys are not afraid of big guys. And, uh, baseball, you know, they come in all sizes and shapes. And what the hell, if he hits you, he hits you. It's no big deal. So it hurts for a little bit. But back, we, yeah, our mindset was a little bit different back in, the culture of the game was different back in those days. Uh, intimidation? No. No. Uh, Ability-wise? Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he could intimidate you with his ability, but not with his toughness or anything else because everybody else that went up there, most guys were as tough as, everybody has some fear in baseball. You gotta learn how to compensate for it. And the way I compensated for it was, did I have fear of the ball? I had some fear, sure. But I was not afraid of who was throwing it. And that was what, how I compensated for it. And a lot of guys felt the same way. So Gibby was just beat us. He was, he was fantastic. In fact, in the last 11th game of the World Series, my last at bat, I hit a ground ball and he went over to back up first. And as I was passing by him, I looked at him and I said, Gibby, you're the greatest. And some, I don't read sports books, but somebody told me he put that in his book. And what had happened was my, my second at bat in about the fifth inning, he struck me. He first pitch he threw me with a sinker. And Gibby didn't throw sinkers. So I backed out of the box. I get back out. Here comes another sinker. I, I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> then he struck me out on a slider or something. And I go back to him. I'm going back to the dugout. Rico was coming up, Petroselli. And I said, Rico, I said, he's lost his fucking fastball. He said, what? I said, he's lost his fastball. And sure enough, he had, he had pitched 300 some innings that year. And this was the third game, you know, in the series. And he just ran out of gas. And he stood out there. It didn't bother him one bit. A lot of guys, they would have, you'd have to take them to intensive care. They'd been so scared. But it didn't bother Gibby. And he stuck it up our ass for the last four innings, five innings uh, with a sinker. And I told that's why I said it's to give you the greatest because it never faced him one bit once he lost his fastball. Who was the best pitcher you went up against? Well, you got to categorize them. You know, uh, right-handed starter, right-handed reliever, left-handed starter, left-handed reliever. Uh, the best stuff I've ever seen to this day was Sam McDowell. Uh, he had the greatest stuff I've ever seen. If I had to have one pitcher, one game for my family's life, it would have been Catfish Hunter. He didn't have shit. He, uh, he threw about 87, 88, maybe 90 every now and then, but he could throw it to a teacup and he, had big balls out there, and he knew how to pitch. Uh, Gibby was a great one, Drysdale, you know. Uh, uh, Mel Stottlemyre for the Yankees was a great pitcher. There's so many of them that uh, Jim Palmer, eight-time, 20-game winner, I think three-time Cy Young Award winner. There's so many great pitchers that you face. I didn't. I love to, to face those guys. And, and I did okay against those guys. The guys that suck it up my ass were the shitballers, you know, in the – Guys with good change-ups, didn't throw hard, you know, had mediocre stuff. Because there's an adrenaline level that you did, at least for me, I had to try to get to. And, and uh, I guess it was easy to get up when you went to the ballpark if you were going to face Sam McDowell. Who I couldn't hit that well anyway with him. Nobody did, except Frank Howard. But there's still much that goes into baseball. That's why baseball, to me, is the most beautiful game because it's the most cerebral game. Baseball will give you the opportunity uh, to beat yourself so many ways. And it gives you so many opportunities. You know, the greatest hitters in the world 
fail seven out of ten times. So you have to have a a mental posture. You have to have a, a, a mindset that you develop through failure, not through success. You develop it through failure, and the more you fail, if you have the balls to go ahead and hang with it and try to improve, then the next season you won't fail as much. You won't strike out as much. You'll get more hits. And it's one of those one of those things. That's why I love baseball. How did you end up going to Cleveland? I got traded. <laughs> did you did you want to go there or you wanted to stay in Boston the rest of your career? No, I got uh I had a great year in sixty eight, you know, as I said, almost won the shuffle crown, led the big leagues and RBIs and then uh Cleveland, Alvin Dark was managing them. And we had obviously had a good relationship. So they needed some hitting. And the Red Sox needed a right-handed starter, uh, a right-handed reliever, and a catcher. So I wake up on a Saturday morning, and I'm reading the paper, and I see this article written by a guy named Larry Klassman who said the Indians and the Red Sox are going to make a deal. The Indians need hitting, and uh, the Red Sox need pitching and a catcher. So my name was involved. They said the Red Sox are going to trade Ken Harrelson, George Scott, Yastrzemski to uh, hold it to Cleveland for pitching. So I called Dick O'Connell, the general manager, up, and I said, Dick, I said, what's, what, what is this? He goes, Hawk. He said, I read it. He said, your name has not even come up. Don't even worry about it. It's pretty good at the ballpark that day. And uh, Louis Kent was pitching for Cleveland. And Louis had just... Had a great year and the year before, you know, set the all-time American League record, which still stands for ERA for a season of 1.60. So the first time up, I hit a home run. Now, the last time up, Louis still out there, and I hit another home run. And I never forget, I was going on first base. And I said, well, that'll pull it, put an end to all that shit. <laughs> so I go home after the game, and uh, I had a... A house guy there, Wendell, he was an older guy, about 75, and he took care of me, you know, he um, cooked for me and everything. So all of a sudden the phone rings. So Wendell picks it up and he handed it to me, and it was Alvin Dark. And he says, Kenneth? He says, that's what he called me. He says, Kenneth, come on over and put the red hat on. I said, what? He said, just trade it for you. I said, you what? He said, I'm getting tired of seeing you hit home runs against us. I just traded for you. So I thought for a minute. I said, Alan, I love you. You know that. But I said, I said, that's bullshit. I said, I'm not coming. He said, yeah, you will. He says, you'll, he says, you'll come for me. I said, no, I'm not. I'm not coming. And they had traded Sonny Siebert, Joe Askew, the catcher, and Vincente Momo, all three of those guys that made the all-star team in the last two years. It was a hell of a deal for Boston. And so I held out. Finally, Louis Kuhn called a, a meeting in New York with the general managers and myself. And by this time, I had Bob Wolf as an agent. And we went over there. And because uh, none of those guys could play, that was the rule at the time. Hope you enjoyed our first part of our interview. Ken Harrelson. After this brief break, we will be back with part two. You are listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Mm-hmm. 